On this episode, we journey into the imagination of Touring Plans' Lynn Testa. Today is February 5th, 2021, and this is episode 328 of the Main Street Magic Podcast. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Main Street Magic. I am your host, Jeremy Stein, and I am joined by my lovely wife, Rhonda. Hey guys. Make sure you check us out on the web at MainSTMagic.com, as well as follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MainSTMagic. If you've not done so already, head on out to Facebook and search for the Main Street Magic community and ask to join. And now uh, go ahead and subscribe to the Main Street Magic feed so you can get new shows every Tuesday and every Friday, as we not only cover Walt Disney World, but we'll be covering Universal Orlando as well. And if you want even more content, including in-park, resort, and at-home live streams, 15% off of Main Street Magic merchandise, and a whole lot more, check out our Patreon group at wonderlandcrew.com. Uh, boy, you guys are in for a treat today, mm-hmm. let me just say. Yes. So we are in, and I know that, not only because Lynn Testa is on the show, so automatically, it's going to be good. But mm-hmm. we just wrapped up recording with him. Uh, we're doing this in kind of post-production as we put in our intro. Intro, uh, And I can just say he dropped so much knowledge and had so many fascinating things to say uh, that you guys are going to love this. Yes, I do believe so. And we really geared everything towards the way that touring plans uh, are working, the way that crowds are working, queues, lines, all during, you know, COVID. Mm-hmm. And so there is yep. just a ridiculous amount of information uh, coming at you here in just a few. Yes. Uh, if you do not know who Lynn is, uh, Lynn is the co-author of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. Uh, a new version will be coming out for 2021 very soon. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend you go to Amazon and you pick it up. I uh, also is the co-author to the unofficial guide to Disneyland, uh, the unofficial guide to British theme parks, and is a contributor to the unofficial guide to Las Vegas. Uh, Lynn is responsible for these things called touring plans that were the result of his graduate thesis, and he's the lead researcher for touringplans.com and book content. When he's not doing that, he's one of the co-hosts of the Disney Dish podcast. Uh, If you have not listened to episode 29, go way back in the vault for Main Street Magic, and you can hear when John and I originally had Lynn on, and we really dove into uh, how Touring Plans was created, his background. Uh, It's a fascinating episode as well. Um, So we hope you will enjoy that one, and we know you're going to enjoy this one. So Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and introduce Lynn. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is such a pleasure to have the uh, one and only Lynn Testa. I know our listeners are really, really excited to hear from you. So seriously appreciate your time and, and coming on the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. I appreciate it. So we're just going to dive uh, right into it. And we're going to talk uh, Disney and stats and touring plans and uh, have a, a real interesting conversation. Yeah. And Lynn, I was curious, how did you quickly adjust your business due to the COVID closures? Oh, uh, it was uh, it was it was tough. Obviously, when both of the parks were were closed, the when they reopened, we we knew that the people who sort of read the unofficial guide and who uh, use our site, yeah, touring plans, were sort of dedicated Disney fans. Like, there's a there's a core of them. I would say about forty percent of our base uh, who were willing to go back as soon as the parks were opened. So for them, so for them, the the questions were, you know more around logistics, right? Where, what's open, where can we stay? 
you know, how do how do wines work without fast pass? How do restaurants work with social distancing? Things like that. So we spent a lot of time in the parks just covering the basics, you know, uh, and that was everything from you know, what the mask requirements are to which kind of masks are most comfortable in Florida in July. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one we certainly found <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that we we, we realized then too is, um, especially in in Florida in summer, um, paper masks are more convenient than cloth masks because you can throw away paper masks, so just bring a few of them. Um, it's, not, it's not as much of a problem during the winter. Um, in fact, uh, you may want to use a paper mask and a cloth mask during winter to stay warm. But, uh, but yeah, it's just one of the things that, you know, you in January, if you told me I'd be researching uh, disposable paper masks in theme parks, I would have, I would have been surprised, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think it's so interesting, you know, if we look back a year now, um, how much things were about to change, you know, of course, you know, worldwide and, and nationwide here and, and for the parks. Um, once reopening, I mean, I know you guys got back into the parks, you know, obviously the biggest difference is there's, there's, capacity limits there's right. markers keeping people six feet apart but how are you able to adjust so quickly to saying here's how we used to do things and here's how we used to get the statistics in the parks based on crowd level wait times here's how we have to do it now because i'm sure it took a little bit of time to now figure out wait times and and how they may be related to disney's posted times what yeah. was that kind of like we there were a, a bunch of things that we had to start modeling from scratch. So in our in our models pre-COVID, um, we when we were trying to estimate a particular wait time, we were taking into account things like whether there were extra magic hours, whether the ride had fast pass, um, and uh, you know we were under operating under the assumption that the park could fill a hundred percent of its capacity. So obviously those things weren't uh, weren't true anymore. So we we had to model things completely differently. So basically we started by, uh, by uh, collecting data from July on, and that makes up, I would say at least 80% of the weight in our models, like most recent data. And the, the, the trouble with that is um, like for Christmas or, or for uh, Thanksgiving or for, you know, Columbus day, we had never seen a Columbus day in which the park was limited to 35% capacity uh, every school system in the United States was virtual and there was no such thing as extra magic hours or special events, right? So the the models were not trained for that sort of thing. The good news is um, is that we were able to make some estimates pretty quickly. So our um, our data our data team, Steve and Fred, um, were able to estimate those things pretty quickly. And the other thing that really helped is, again, we have a dedicated set of users. One of the things that they were doing as soon as they got back in the park was through our app, um, giving us the actual wait times that they were writing in line. Yeah, so we get hundreds of those per day, generally from the most popular attractions. So we get you know lots of actual wait times from Space Mountain or Splash Mountain. We get relatively few from Astro Orbiter, but relatively <laughs> few people are going on Astro Orbiter, so you know that's kind of okay. Um, that's and, funny. And that was really interesting because one of the things we highlighted up front was that like when we all got back into the parks, we all we realized that the way that Disney was estimating your 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 posted wait time was just completely bonkers, and that was because they they had no experience doing it. So so prior to the pandemic, like you know a year ago, the way that Disney was uh, estimating the wait times 
was by electronically reading the magic bands as people got in line and then when they were about to board the ride. So like there was an, a magic band sensor somewhere near the end of the line. And then there was another magic band sensor right before you got on the ride. And it calculated the difference between those two things and sort of estimated, you know, how long you waited in line. That would become the posted wait time, right? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so that's how they, that's how they used to do it. Um, but the problem with that with, uh, is when they introduced social distancing, the lines became so much longer. So like the line for Jungle Cruise or the line for Slinky Dog, right? The line for Slinky Dog goes from Slinky Dog all the way back through um, uh, past uh, One Man's Dream to basically where Voyage of the Little Mermaid musical was, right? Okay. Disney did not put RFID sensors in the line going back to that far, right? For Slinky Dog, right? There's, so what they had to do there, so there's, so there's no automatic way for them to estimate the weight at Slinky Dog. And what they had to do was eyeball it. And that brings up the second problem, which is no one's ever had to eyeball a line like that before. So no one knows what the standard is, right? Um, so there are some rides like uh, Splash or Toy Story Mania where reliably the wait time is basically double. Uh, the posted wait time is double what you're actually going to wait. Sometimes it's, it's three times. Like the posted wait time is just so inaccurate. You might as well divide by two or divide by three and that'll be more accurate. But then there are rides like Millennium Falcon where whoever's holding that sign at the end of Millennium Falcon really knows what they're doing because your actual wait time is going to be like, you know, 90 to 95% of that. And, and so figuring out by ride how the, the relationship goes between posted and actual wait times, that was, that was tricky. And we're still, you know, we're still doing that because things, things change, but um, yeah, that was, that was, that was one of the bigger challenges. The good thing is, is again, we had tons of users in the parks every day. Um, so we're able to get that data, but that was, that was a key challenge. And and so, I mean, is it getting to a point now where at least it is, it can become almost an eyeball situation. You say, all right, slinky dog. We know that if, if, you know, last person in line is at voyage of the little mermaid, it's X number of minutes, or is that still so varying? Because I know, you know, we've been back several times, uh, mm -hmm. since reopening, you know, a dozen or so. And we've noticed that of course, even those, uh, length of lines, can maybe not be as accurate based on if people are adhering to the floor markers. You know, if people are larger groups that might be taking up several of the floor markers and then you kind of push the line back. Um, right. Obviously, the, the best way for anyone to know what they can expect is to subscribe to touring plans and use your lines app and, you know, check it out there. But is is it changing almost on a weekly basis with things like that and with still trying to monitor uh, I guess the new crowds and what those percentages actually actually look like. I would say that um, I'd have to go back and look at the individual attractions. But for me, I would say the attractions that are consistently wrong are consistently wrong on a regular basis. Like Toy Story Mania, you know, if I had a, if I had a choice between uh, betting the posted wait time is accurate or the uh, uh, the actual wait time is like half or a third of what's posted. I would pick the latter, right? Not not that the posted wait time is accurate. Um, you know, whether it's fifty percent or sixty percent, you know, I'm not sure, but it's 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 not going to be what the sign says. Um, and the same thing for Millennium Falcon, right? If if I had to bet whether the time you're going to wait in line for Millennium Falcon is you know almost exactly what's posted or half of what's posted, I'd go with exactly what's posted. It's but it's weird to figure out why, like. 
Like why are why did why do some and it could be the you know the 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 people who manage that one attraction um, have better have have paid attention more to the uh, to it than than others, right? Because it's not it, it doesn't seem to be like a, a given land. It's more like a, it's at the attraction level where things are not accurate. So yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, like like Seven Doors Mine Train is always more accurate than uh, Splash Mountain or Big Thunder Mountain. Okay, well, that's su- that's such useful info, though. You know, for yeah. for people that are are going back, so I absolutely love that. Len, um, do you t- do you take the times into account when they clean the vehicles too, or how does that work? So we did originally um, when we when we first started um, uh, getting new data in July. Disney was stopping the rides roughly every three hours for a 20 minute cleaning cycle. So we knew if the park opened at 10, like the Magic Kingdom, the first cleaning cycle would be at one. And you can actually see a little blip in wait times um, for you know the bigger rides. Um, what Disney's done now is gone to sort of more uh, a continuous cleaning cycle. So they don't stop the rides every 20 minutes now. Um, and that has really evened out the, um, the, the wait time um, curves. So everything is more smooth and we don't have to take that into account anymore. I think something still happens at Rise of the Resistance every day around three o'clock. Because if you look at if you look at when Rise stops calling boarding groups, if you look at the time of day, the most common time it, it has a pause is around 3 p.m. It doesn't happen every day. Um, yeah, but you, like I think that there's a regularly scheduled like reset of the ride at three o'clock. That's the other thing that we see with the um, with the data. Again, I know you're constantly adjusting, but what have you seen as they start to uh, increase loads on rides? Like, you know, when we first started going back, of course, and, and only till recently, you know, roller coasters were every other row. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you had certain rides that were at full capacity, such as Kilimanjaro Safari, because they had plastic between each. So not technically full capacity, but still you at least had a family per row. Yeah, just under below, just under ninety percent capacity because you couldn't share a row with people. But yeah, yeah. So, so what do you what are you seeing now when things like Slinky Dog, for example? Last time we went, we were so surprised as we stepped up and they're filling every single row. Right. How greatly has that impacted wait times, or are crowds increasing enough to the limited capacity that it just evens out? Well, the big one was on um, uh, Mickey Mouse Runaway Railway, where you could see an almost instant drop in wait times from one day to the next when they added the plexiglass dividers between rows. Because before that, you were, you were loading, I think, the first and the last row of each train. But when they cut the plexiglass on and they were loading everything, you know, for a new ride like that, where the demand was so high for it, to be able to go from, you know, 40% capacity or whatever, 30% capacity to, you know, closer to 80 or 90% capacity, that was huge. So that was interesting because then we had to, we had to adjust our models then too. So, so then going back and, you know, Rise was obviously kind of the same as they added plexiglass there. And we started to see a, a better, you know, um, loading of that and, and increased loads. Yep. Every, every question, I'm sure you get this a million times and you've answered it a million times, but we'd love, you know, for our listeners to know what, what would be your recommendations and secrets to get that, you know, coveted Rise of the Resistance <laughs> boarding group? So one of the things that we looked at... Um, both when when Rise first opened and then after the pandemic had started was, uh, so we looked at two things. One, um, if you're in the park, um, like for the one o'clock boarding group drop, where should you go and whether and whether you should use um, Disney's Wi-Fi or your cell phone signal. 
if you're if you're outside the park, um, it's a sort of a similar question. If you're on Disney's Wi-Fi or not. Um, so what I say is this: if you're outside the park, like let's say it's seven a.m. and the park's not open, um, if you're on Disney Wi-Fi, I would get off of Disney Wi-Fi and use your cell phone signal. So we looked at um, we looked at the the route that your request takes from your phone to Disney's servers. So Disney servers are somewhere we think they're somewhere in Oregon um, at an Amazon at an Amazon um, Web Services data center in uh, in Oregon. So from your phone, if you're using Disney's Wi-Fi, it goes basically from your phone to the Disney's Wi-Fi network and then through an internal Disney network um, directly to the Disney servers that are processing requests for Rise of the Resistance. Um, but if you're using a cell phone, like I was using, I used T-Mobile. Um, so my T-Mobile signal uh, request went from my phone in Orlando to Tampa, to Miami, to somewhere in California, uh, to somewhere in Southern California, somewhere in Northern California, and then to Oregon, which was longer, right? Um, it was about five times as long in terms of time um, to get there. The interesting thing was, though, um, Disney's Wi-Fi network was not as reliable. So it was dropping basically one out of every 16 requests that I was making for Rise of the Resistance, whereas the cell phone network basically dropped you know, almost none. So do you want faster and less reliable or slower and more reliable? And I think for most people, you want slower and more reliable. And the, uh, the other interesting thing is, is this. Um, there are so many requests coming in that um, even if everybody's requests made it to um, Disney servers at exactly the same time, it's still a lottery. And the reason is, is that Disney servers aren't programmed to handle that capacity. So some requests will fail, even if you did everything right. And th that's kind of, that's that's maddening to me. Like, oh, oh yes, <laughs> no, it it certainly is to us because we've you know I would say we're at a if we're lucky fifty percent success rate, and that's you know that's probably us trying at least uh, once a month, if not twice a month. Um, but but what I love, and, and this is why I just think you know you and, and touring plans and your data team is just so interesting, is that everything we've seen is people saying don't use Disney's Wi-Fi. Use your cell phone signal. And people are like, yeah. okay. But nobody's ever been able to really explain why. And yeah, so, so for you why, to be able yeah. to come in and do that's unbelievable. I will say if, um, if you want to try it, if you want to try Disney's Wi-Fi, we also measured um, cell phone signal or uh, Wi-Fi signal strength and reliability in the parks. And the place where it seems to be the most reliable is, and this isn't surprising, right? But um, over by Disney Junior, in Animation Courtyard. And the reason for that is, I mean, there's nothing going on in Animation Courtyard, so there's no one there. So there's no one else on the on that little section of Wi-Fi. Um, where you don't want to be is like Hollywood Boulevard or, um, you know, Toy Story Land or Galaxy's Edge because tons of people are on the Wi-Fi there. You could also be sort of like in Echo Lake because there's relatively few people over there. But, um, yeah. The, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we did, it was a really interesting blog, blog post for, uh, for that we, Brought in a couple of laptops and you know ran them all simultaneously. It was a lot of fun. That's that's just so fascinating like to me. Um, is is it is it anywhere near known? I mean, have you guys done the data on potentially how many boarding positions are given out on any given day? So I know how many boarding groups are given out, and that's somewhere between 140 and 160 on a given day. All right. So rise of the resistance before COVID was anywhere from like. 
a thousand, uh, just under 1400 people an hour. And then post COVID it started off at 740. So basically 60% of, of capacity. And now it's up closer to, you know, it's above a thousand now. Um, they're not quite where they, you know, where they need to be, but they're probably in the 1100 to 1200 range right now per hour. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, I mean, we've seen, you know, people getting more luck, especially now at that 1 PM drop, um, having a little bit more success. So we know they are kind of getting more through there. Yeah. Um, but when we, when, when we talk about capacities and this is the one that I find so interesting and, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say is, you know, we, we've used touring plans for, for several years now, about three years or so ago, I think we started using it. And, you know, I, I, I absolutely love using it just as a tracker of our trips and, you know, putting in and I can, you know, everybody has all these fancy countdown apps and I love just going into touring plans and saying, here's all my trips coming up. Here's where we're staying. Here's reservation numbers. Yep. Um, so absolutely love that part. But obviously you know, crowds and what the crowd sizes are mm -hmm. is how many people are looking to plan their trips if they're flexible in their dates. Um, knowing that, you know, Disney's saying we're at about 35% capacity. Yep. That of course is 35% of a hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, it's not 35% of just say that park on that given day was normally only at 60. So have the numbers really changed outside of a day that parks were hitting the higher capacities like what was a normal capacity for parks outside of some of the big major holidays and busy seasons i mean how are you determining that so an average day at the magic kingdom uh was uh before the pandemic an average day was somewhere between like 57 and fifty nine thousand people um, and it, now with pandemic at 35%, it's probably 32,000 people maximum. So not quite half, but pretty close. Um, for something like Epcot, where, you know, capacity used to be like 100,000, 110,000 people, you know, 35% is 35,000. That's pretty much a full day at Epcot. Yeah. So how, how is, how is your assessment of that one to 10 scale change? <laughs> based on <laughs> yeah. this that's a great question so we actually kept the, the same one to ten scale so that people could have a reference so um the the one to ten scale is based on average wait times in the park um and I'm, I'm making up numbers here but let's say you know if you if you averaged out all the wait times at the at the big rides between 11 a.m and 5 p.m which is when there are peak crowds um you know if that if that average uh of the rides wait times was like 60 minutes that might be a five in our crowd so we kept that the same because, um, you know, relatively few people care how many people are in the parks. More people care how long you're going to wait in line. So that's the number that we that we focus on. Like if you know, if I told you your wait in line at Big Thunder is going to be 45 minutes, I don't I don't think anybody cares whether that's because there are 30,000 people in the park or 60,000 people in the park. They just care about the wait time number. So that's why we use that. So we kept the scale the same, which allowed people to see how much less crowded the parks were on a given day. Like over Christmas, for example, where on our one to 10 scale, Christmas is normally, you know, the, the week between Christmas and New Year's is normally a 10 every day. It's the, the peak time of the year. If the scale went up to 14, there would be days when, you know, the parks were really at a 14. Um, but this year, the park crowd level never got above a six and that only happened once in the Magic Kingdom. And I think the park uh, crowd average was four, um, which, is historically low. I mean, four is below average, 
no matter how you look at it. So the thing we were telling people is, you know, look, I, uh, you know, I know Christmas is going to be the busiest time of the year, um, but you will never see Christmas crowds this low again in your lifetime, or at least let's hope not. Right. So <laughs> yes, yes yeah. let's hope. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, if you, if you, if you really wanted low crowds, now is the time to go. And that's true. I mean, I don't think, I don't think Disney is going to increase park capacity meaningfully until we get, you know, more than half of the U S population vaccinated. So we, we've got a few months at 35% capacity. Yeah. And Len, with all that being said, I'm curious of your thoughts and recommendations with the park reservations on rope dropping now. We rewrote the uh, rope drop section and then we, because we, um, we're, you know, for the unofficial guide with the projector for the rest of 2021, we also had to figure out what's going to happen with early theme park entry, which by the way is the worst, least catchy name that Disney's <laughs> come up with. For, I'm calling it extra magic minutes. Like, yeah, it's like, seriously. It's like extra magic hours, but it's only half as much. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so we know, for example, like the Magic Kingdom is opening up anywhere from 30 to 50 minutes in advance of official park opening. Same thing with the studios. It's opening up like, you know, 50 or so minutes. Um, what we had to tell people was, um, those people who were driving, we had to tell them what to do if the toll booths weren't open. And that's basically, you know, just circle around. Until you, can, until you can get there again. Or, you know, ideally, like if you're going to the studios or Epcot, don't drive. Just get a, an Uber or a Lyft. Get dropped off at the Swan and walk. Right? That's the, uh, that's the best way to get there. So our, our rope dropping procedures changed a little bit. The other thing we had to figure out was um, what ride to suggest to people. Because when you get in the park, it's possible that there's, you know, like the Magic Kingdom, if you're there 50 minutes before opening and the park opens, it's entirely possible there's only one ride open. And that's Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. So the question is, is okay, you get there 50 minutes in advance, you head directly to the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you ride it, what do you do next? And the interesting thing about that is when, uh, I was actually there for this testing. I was in the park and I was helping test it out. We What we did was we had people go into the park in multiple lands and try and document what was open over a series of days. And, um, when I got in there, I uh, my first uh, where I was supposed to go was Peter Pan Small World Haunted Mansion and see what was open. So I so I headed over there, and you know Peter Pan wasn't open. So I asked the cast member, you know what's okay, what else is open here? I see that that Small World's not open, but what else is? And they said, well, try Haunted Mansion. So I walk over to Haunted Mansion and it's not open. So I ask a cast member there, is Haunted you know what else is open? And they said, well, try Big Thunder. So I walk all the way down to Big Thunder. And of course, Big Thunder's not open yet. And I'm like, okay, what, you know, can you tell me what's open? And they said, I think, I think Pirates is open. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why would Pirates be open if Mansion, Thunder, and Splash, and Peter Pan aren't open? But I walk over to Pirates, and it was open. So, so we had to do that over and over again um, to figure out what, uh, what rides are open. And the other interesting thing is that we, we actually support this now in the app. So in our lines app, we have this, we, we added the, the ability to support pre-official opening openings of the park. And we had to figure out like what, what rides are likely to be open, how soon and stuff like that. That was a major challenge um, as well too. Cause then you have to start forecasting out what the wait times are going to be right. Like, uh, you know, if the park opens at nine, but it really opens at eight, eight, 10, what's the wait time at seven doors mine train at eight thirty? Right. That's a, that's a tricky question. Yeah, so we had to do that. That was fun. How have you how have you seen uh, the Lines app 
growing? Are you seeing such a greater increase of people that are using it? Or what have you kind of seen the trend be with the app uh, during, you know, the time from, I guess, now back to the reopening uh, back in July? I mean, definitely more people are, are using it. They, um, I think everybody realizes that the posted wait times are off. So the big thing that we see from people is using it for actual wait times. The other thing is uh, that people are using it for is, is obviously for touring plans. And, and the main reason for that is because there's no such thing as FastPass anymore. So e- you know, even with a you know the park's limited to 35% capacity, the waits for some rides, rides can still be an hour. Um, so we spent a ton of time redoing the touring plan starting in July to figure out you know where to go and what to do next. And, and even on a slow day, like we could, when the parks were dead, like like in July when there were maybe you know ten thousand people in the Magic Kingdom total, it was still possible to save half an hour using the touring plans. Like or or even in like Animal Kingdom. You know, we were there in 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 early August when there couldn't have been five thousand people in the park. I mean, just, just mind-bogglingly low numbers. But um, because there are relatively fewer rides, you know, it's still possible to save you know forty minutes uh, knowing what to do there. And and so for for that, it's really interesting. Like for Animal Kingdom, one of the strategies that the the software will frequently recommend is going to Flight of Passage last, because by like three or four o'clock, everyone has left left the Animal Kingdom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Which is not something you would ever have recommended, you know, you're right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Normally. I know. I know. Boy, have things changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, with you talking about um, no fast passes, what do you think about the future and if there are going to ever be any more? Uh, well, here's the thing. So if you think about the, the, the programs that have been cut, so Magical Express um, and Extra Magic Hours, right, have been cut. Um, the two big popular things that are left that uh, are dining plans and fast pass, right? Um, dining plans are interesting because Disney doesn't, I don't think they have the restaurant capacity right now to offer dining plans to enough people to make it make sense for them, right? So if, if, if restaurants are operating at 50% capacity, uh, they can't sell that many dining plans because even even in pre-pandemic times, it was still really difficult to get reservations at certain restaurants, right? So, um, I you know I I would be surprised to see dining plans um, come back this year, um, but I think they do I think they do come back because number one they're enormously popular, right? Lots of people love the idea of just prepaying for your meals and not having to worry about what you eat or the cost of it when you get to the parks, right? That's a huge advantage. The other thing that um, about the dining plans are it, it's got to be super profitable for Disney because because you're prepaying for the food you're basically taking all the risk if you if you don't eat every meal it's money in Disney's pocket and if you eat more than that you're paying the uh, the overage to Disney anyway um, so you know well, I don't think the dining plans will, are going to come back you know this year at least until everyone's vaccinated but they will come back you know fast pass is a different story because fast pass is basically, you know, I look at it as there's a, there's definitely a concrete cost for Disney running it, right? They got to staff extra lines. They've got to staff the software. They've got to, um, uh, you know, advertise it, explain it to people, right? So there's, there's, there's costs in running it, but the benefits to Disney aren't money. It's satisfaction. 
right? So the reason why we do FastPass Plus is because Disney realized that people who used paper FastPass were more satisfied than people who didn't. Um, and the problem with that is, you know, on the one hand, Disney's looking at this number that says we have to spend X dollars to run FastPass, but we're not getting X. I can't see where X dollars are being generated in return, right? So, you know, I, I would, if you told me FastPass wasn't coming back the way it was, I would not be surprised. I think, um, and I've said this before, but I think the, the purpose of the Genie app that Disney's announced is to bring paid FastPass to the parks. Like it, do, it doesn't make any sense to me to build that app and you know do like we do and charge $16 for it or whatever. If that's, if that's what Disney's thinking, I think that's crazy. Um, number one, because um, they probably spend millions of dollars to develop it and making that money back would be difficult. Um, but number two, I mean, I don't know why you would have a Genie app, a My Disney Experience app, a Disney Park Play Parks app. You know, why would you have three different apps for the parks? That doesn't it doesn't make sense either. So my my get my sense is is you know, if FastPass comes back, it will come back as part of Genie and be paid somehow. Do do you see maybe potential of doing something along the lines of what Universal does with Express Pass? You know, and and maybe it's either still a benefit of on-site guests only right. or it's a benefit of platinum and platinum plus only but anybody with a pass lower has an ability to to buy it um is it potential that it becomes more of like an add-on in that type of manner do you think yeah i don't think they can they can offer it to resort guests uh like universal that's simply because of the number of resort uh rooms that they have yeah that's just a, it's a yeah, non-starter for them um i do think they could so when you, when you talk about genie you know and uh the thing that I'm really interested in is the pricing model of it. Like I understand how it's going to work and stuff like that. But for me, the pricing model, I said before, it doesn't make sense at $16, but if you said, you know, genie is going to be, you know, somewhere between, it's going to be like a universal express passing passes uh, where it's, you know, 60 to $130 per person per day. Right. Then that kind of makes sense to me. Right. Where, um, you know, fast passes included, in Disney Genie, uh, but you got to pay extra for it. That that makes sense as a pricing model to me. Uh, I have no idea how they're going to do it though. But that's 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 the only pricing model to me that makes sense. Or it could be like this: FastPass goes away for everyone, right? The only way to get FastPasses is through is by using the Genie app, um, and it, it works something like this. Let's say that you know Genie optimizes your your day, um, but no matter what you um, there's no way to uh, to avoid a 60 minute wait in line for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, right? You know, Genie could say, okay, you know, uh, the wait for your day um, at Seven Dwarfs Mine Train is, uh, is can't be lower than 60 minutes, um, or we can sell you, you know, four passes, four fast passes for your group to make the wait 10 minutes. Um, the passes are twenty dollars each. You know, click here to buy. I could see that. As a as a model for Genie too, right? Where you can where it offers you sort of an on the fly, instant fast pass for a certain dollar amount. That boy, that would be interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, well, I guess even then, with all that said, I mean, what do you think is kind of you know the future of, of virtual queues? Is that something that you know Disney's just going to continue to use with Rise? I mean, because they kind of just have to in a sense. But do you see that coming to 
some of the the future rides such as you know uh ratatouille remy's ratatouille adventure you know cosmic rewind tron um some of these big big ticket rides do you think that'll come into play or are we just going to see things with those rides like we've always seen whether fast pass is coming back or not yeah uh the, so the reason why disney originally put boarding groups at rise is because the, the ride itself was unreliable um and um, that and Bob Chapik sort of boxed them in by saying that a 10-hour wait in line for Hagrid's Magical Motorbike Adventures was a failure, right? So once he said that, you could not then have a 10-hour 10 10 standby line for Rise of the Resistance, right? Because that would make the CEO look bad, and God forbid we do that. Um, so, we, so that means that we can't see the same thing for Remy or Guardians or Tron. And so they've got a couple of options. One is they could do boarding groups for, for those rides as well, right? Um, the other thing, though, that we've seen is uh, like during peak periods in December when I was in the parks, for things like Slinky Dog, once the line got back to sort of like Launch Bay, Disney simply said, you, you can't get in line anymore. They capped the line. And they said, you know, you, you can get in line once the line reaches Voyage of the Little Mermaid. Right. They could do the same thing too. Um, and the advantage of doing that for like Remy or Guardians or Tron is it's very simple, right? You don't need to build technology. You don't need to manage boarding groups. You don't need to get people mad when they can't get a boarding group. Right. Um, you just say, look, you know, the, we've, we've, we've cut off the line. You can't get in the line anymore. Come back in an hour. And people sort of understand that. Um, I do know that they've they've tested the ability to add boarding groups to other rides. So if you look at the My Disney Experience data feed, um, there are instances where they were testing um, the use of boarding groups at things like Jungle Cruise, right, um, or Millennium Falcon. They never did it, and the fact that they never did it to me means that it was more of a intellectual exercise, like could we do it, rather than you know will we will we ever do it again? Yeah. Well, um, I, I know you're not a, a, a genie or a crystal, have a crystal ball mm -hmm. yourself, but you certainly have enough knowledge. This is why we keep throwing future questions at you. Um, you know, currently we, we see park reservations going through January 14th of 2022. Yep. Um, what do you think is the future of that? And of course, you being a stats guy, you know, I mean, Disney obviously always had their own data of what you know, capacities looked like, what staffing they needed uh, mm -hmm. based on ticket sales, resort stays. Is, is park reservation something that potentially Disney's loving because they have a much, you know, I, get, I guess better finger on the pulse of who's really going to be in parks. Therefore, they can understand staffing, food, you know, and all of those things. Do you think that park reservations could go on for longer than technically needed based on vaccinations and, and you know, COVID numbers going down or are they only basing park reservations on COVID? I think um, park reservations last at least as long as there are capacity limits. Um, but to your point, if Disney's not using park reservation data for things like staffing, uh, that's a huge opportunity lost. Like, because, and, and the advantage of that is like in, in the old days, you, know, you could have sort of estimated crowds based on how many fast passes were being used, um, you know, which attraction stuff like, but, but again, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this. There are a lot of people who simply didn't know that FastPass existed. And so they didn't oh, make yeah. any reservations prior to getting <laughs> yes. the park. Yeah. 
in this case, um, you know, I think the C's did a really good job about telling people you need to make a park reservation before you get in, right? Like when you buy a ticket, it basically tells you that. So they should have a much better idea of how many people are going to be in the park at any given time. Um, so, you know, there's a really good chance that that lasts once the pandemic is over and capacity limits are lifted only because it's such a huge operational um, benefit to Disney. And it's mainly a benefit to Disney for annual pass holders. Like if you're buying a, a dated ticket, you know, good for April 4th to April 11th or whatever, Disney has a pretty good idea of when you're going to be there, right? Um, same thing if you've, if you've got tickets attached to your hotel stay, right? If your hotel stay is April 4th to April 11th, Disney has a pretty good idea when you're going to be in the parks, right? And you know how many people are going to be in your hotel room and so on. It's the annual pass holders for whom the park reservation system is the most valuable because those people could show up at any time. So um, it's possible that annual pass holders get park reservations going forward. And we've seen the same thing at Disneyland, right? When, whenever, um, whenever the Disneyland annual pass holder program comes back, it's going to be, you know, severely limited in how many reservations you can have and it's going to be a reservation only. So um, I, I don't, I think all annual pass holders will have that going forward. Wow. I think that's cool. Cause I yeah. actually like it. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I love it with the fact and, and we'll see again what happens with openings of, you know, Remy's Ratatouille adventure and, and things should like should be this that. month. I'll be shocked if it's not this month. That's, that's what we're hoping. I mean, if they felt like opening it on February 13th as a soft opening <laughs> while we're already in Epcot, like we're totally cool with that. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the reservation system works. You know, we were we were there at, you know, 3 a.m. for the opening of Galaxy's Edge. We were there at 4 a.m. for the opening of Rise. We were there at 4 or 5 a.m. for the opening of, of Mickey and Minnie's. And, and there were technically no guarantees you could get yeah. in. You had an idea, but, you know, there's I think there's certainly like a, uh, I don't know, there, there's just a sense of knowing for sure that you'll be able to get into a park that is reassuring well, yeah. I'm, I'm happy because we have park reservations for the 50th anniversary. Yeah, already. And we don't have to get up early and like we know we're getting in. Yeah. So. Yeah. That makes and a that's huge good. difference. And, and yeah. so I think, yeah, I think the reservations are mainly for Disney to be able to manage the um, the annual pass holders, right? Because they could, they could turn that off at any given time. If, we, if they see, you know, hotel occupancy numbers going way, way, way up or they see dated ticket sales going way, way, way up. They can just restrict the number of annual pass holders coming in, which is basically what they're going to do at Disneyland, right? I mean, annual pass holders will become third-tier citizens um, behind hotel guests and those with dated tickets, yeah. Yeah, they're not going to be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But no. it, is, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lynn, what do you think about park copying now? And now I know it's after 2 p.m., um, but do you, what do you think about it, and do you think it's worth it? Yeah, I, I do for a number of reasons. One, um, if you look at what Disney is trying to do with Harmonious, um, and I, you know, I think some version of Fantasmic is coming back, real, you mm-hmm. know, sooner rather than later. Um, the the thing, like the main one of the main draws of Epcot, especially World Showcase, has always been the dining component, right? It's one of the integral parts of Epcot, and they're losing that now because there's no um, there's no evening entertainment. Um, and and let's, face it, let's face it, I mean, other than, you know, walking around Epcot because it's huge, there's not a lot to, um, to to do in Epcot. Like, you don't need two days anymore to, to see it all, right? You can, you can do it all pretty quickly. Um, so I think they, you know, for Harmonious to be successful, they're going to need 
um, dining. And once they do that, um, the reason why people will go there is if they could park up. Like, you know, you especially with Animal Kingdom opening up at 8 and uh, Epcot opening up at 11 or 12, right? You could, when, when Animal Kingdom opens at 8, but it really opens at like 7.15, you could be done with the big five rides by like 9.30, Right. And which means you could probably finish the park by noon, which means you, you know, you have a couple of choices then. Right. If you don't want to park up, you're basically going home. Well, Disney's losing out on on all of that revenue. Right. Um, but if you let them let people park up to Epcot right, and you give them a reason to stay through dinner, you get, you know, more merchandise opportunities, more meal opportunities. Right? You get a lot more chances to spend money if you're if you're in a park. So um, that's that's what's driving that for Disney, um, yeah. I, and I wouldn't be surprised, like on like yesterday, for example, when it was basically some of the lowest crowds of the year. Like you could, there's no reason why Disney couldn't have let you p- park up everywhere, right? There just weren't that many people in the park, so you you, you could have you know there, you could have allowed everyone in Walt Disney World to park up where, to wherever they wanted as soon as all the parks were open yesterday. And it wouldn't have affected capacity at all, I don't think. So, yeah. So I, I would expect to see some relaxation of the rules too. And I think Disney's, Disney's been pretty clear about that, right? They, they, I think they came out and said, like, you know, we're going to start at 2 o'clock, but that, that's a guideline. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that makes complete sense. Um, well, kind of one final, I guess, question, and, and we can kind of wrap up a bit because um, this has been absolutely fascinating. The, the question that I know we get the most, um, and it's not, it's not from folks like us who are APs that live two hours away and, you know, definitely totally worth going. It's more from the family that goes mm-hmm. once a year, or they're even looking mm-hmm. to plan their first trip. They're looking to drop several thousand dollars. Oof. You know, they're, they're going to pay the same for obviously something that is very limited in many ways compared to where yeah. it was a year ago. Yep. What, what do you say to those people when they come and say, you know, Lynn, is it, is it worth me taking my family right now? Uh, so uh, we have two sets of advice. If it's your first time trip or it's your once in a lifetime trip, um, we're telling people to wait until fireworks and character greetings come back. And that might be a year uh, from now. But those are such important components of a Disney World trip that it's difficult to recommend spending that kind of money and not having those experiences. Right. Um, but for everyone else, you know, the thing I tell people is, is this. Um, you'll never see crowds this low again. Right. Um, Disney's doing a great job at mask enforcement. So we count 500 people every day in the theme parks. And then of those 500 people, how many people are not wearing masks according to Disney's? Yeah. So we do this every day. We've been doing it since October. So we counted, you know, tens of thousands of people. And um, that number, that per day number has never been below 94%. And several times it's approached 99%. So the, the people who are in the parks, and by the way, and the, and the people who aren't, um, who we who we say are not, you know, uh, mask compliant. All they're doing is dropping their mask, taking a sip of water, and walking at the same time. Like no one's walking around without a mask in Walt Disney World. Every single person has a mask on. They're, but you know, but Disney's guidelines are um, you have to be stationary while eating or drinking. So if you're not, that counts as not mask compliance to us. Um, but yeah, every, I mean, everyone wears a mask. Um, they're you know socially distant in the uh, in the restaurants. Um, some of the best meals that I've had on property have been since the pandemic, um, because 
like I, I was telling people, like there are times when you'll walk into a restaurant like the Wave and there'll be three people in the restaurant. And it's like, you know, the chef has nothing to do but make sure that your meal is perfect, right? Uh, so you're never going to get that kind of, you're never going to get that kind of attention in Walt Disney World again from a chef. It's just never going to happen. You're never going to be, you're never going to be the only person in a restaurant surrounded by a million dollars of kitchen equipment and a team of talented chefs, right? It's never going to happen again. So, um, you know, if you've been to Walt Disney World before and you don't necessarily care about seeing the, the characters or, you know, Fast Pass or something like that, yeah, you know, then it's, it's, it's a, it's a good time to go. Yeah. We, we would agree completely. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny to talk about restaurants. I don't know if it's just us getting older, but, you know, pre-pandemic, it was like we couldn't even have a conversation in a Disney restaurant because they oh, were yeah. so loud. <laughs> and now to go and be distanced and, you know, it, it, we certainly don't believe there's any true positives to a pandemic. But when you want to look at the things, you know, that you know, you can almost say or are, are positive in a sense, cause you kind of want to look for that shining light. Um, yeah. something like that. I think there is one that, and we enjoy riding the bus again. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who would have thought, right? Yeah. I know who like, we like, we're okay with it now. I mean, it used to be, you know, we stay on property every month that we go and we would drive to every park, but magic kingdom. Um, obviously, but you know, now we're like, or hey, Uber. Yeah, or Uber or something. Now we're like, hey, let's get on a bus to, to Animal Kingdom. Who cares? We don't need to just drive. Easier. Like, this is this is nice. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, that, um, that that pretty much sums up my uh, my reaction to the whole pandemic. It's like this was this was. I'm, I'm glad I experienced it. Let's never do this again, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> we are on board for that one. Yeah, I'm glad I saw Disney World during the pandemic. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's get let's kind of get back to normal. Well, um, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find touring plans, uh, any kind of plug, you know, you want to give for for Disney Disney Dish, anything like that. Uh, the floor is yours to to promote all you want. Cool. Thanks. All right. So my uh, my website is uh, touringplans.com. Uh, I also co-author the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World, and the 2021 edition is coming out soon. You can order that on Amazon. Also, you can uh, find me uh, hosting the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill every Monday on iTunes uh, and also at uh, DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Awesome. Well, Lynn, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we cannot thank you enough for, for taking you know time out of your busy schedule and day to, to sit down with us. So we truly appreciate it. Yes, thank oh, thanks, you. Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks, Rhonda. I appreciate it. Wow. Um, how awesome was that? So awesome. Loved it learned so much Mm -hmm. i love all the attention to detail the research the data uh everything that you know lynn and his amazing team put into this oh yeah you know like to as we said you know we've heard all these different things we know all these different things about about wait times about mask usage about rise boarding groups but to have the data and the analytics behind it that his team has come up with was just so so cool it really was so i just what a what a awesome uh guest this mm-hmm. was so much fun. Uh, we really, really appreciate Lynn coming on. And uh, we really appreciate you guys listening. Hopefully you enjoyed yes. this conversation as much as we did. Yes. And if you have not already subscribed to Main Street Magic, now would be a good time to go ahead and push that button. And as long as you're out there, you might as well leave us a rating and review. Because it helps our show grow. That's all we've got. We'll see you real soon. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs>